Hey there, Normal Cast listeners. Have you ever wondered how that bedraggled, sallow, hunched-over dude you see crawling from his tent every morning manages to magically send 514 by day's end and look like a stud doing it? Well, first of all, he doesn't have a real job. But second, he uses artificial stimulants, a.k.a. caffeine. Now, I can't guarantee that drinking Defiant Bean Coffee will turn you into a 514 climber or make you more attractive. But it will make you feel better about the fact that you're probably never going to climb 514. And thrusting a steamy cup of Defiant Bean in your tent mate's hand early in the morning will shroud you in a rosy glow. Oh, you're such a good friend. I wish my boyfriend did stuff like this for me, but he doesn't even like to climb. Hmm. So if you want to fill every day with limitless possibilities, at least in your mind, then head over to DefiantBean.com and order some fresh roasted, responsibly sourced coffee beans from friend of the show and climber Jeff Hollenbaugh. When you enter Enormo at checkout, you get a discount and the Enormo cast gets a couple bucks too. So once again, that's DefiantBean.com, enter Enormo at checkout. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in tent? Are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo dome, whatever it is, it's terrific. Oh it's yeah, big place, that side of town. That's a big nice. place, you sold that out. Tent, I'll see. We really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic, those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather, bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Hello and welcome to the Enormous Cast. This is your host, Chris Blues. This is episode 26. It is January 2nd, 2013. It's about 11 o'clock in the morning. It is after the holidays. I hope everybody survived the holidays and hopefully you came out the other side stoked and ready to kick some ass this year. I'm hunkered down in my friend's jam room in his basement in Illinois, deep in the heart of the Midwest. Maybe not the heart. You Oklahomans probably think you're the heart. But I'm dying to get back to Colorado. Uh, No offense to you Flatlander folks, but uh, winter living here is hard on the climbing soul. You know that more than I do, I bet. Uh, But as the Dos Equis guy says, stay thirsty, my friends, and uh, make sure and buy that ticket to Potrero, where it's warm and the beer flows like beer, actually. I've never had Mexican wine, but... I'd imagine you want to stick with the beer. So, folks, it's the new year, unless you're listening in China. I think they have a different new year, or maybe you're Mayan, and you're just lost because your calendar just stopped. I don't really make resolutions, you know. I live in the moment every single day. You know what I mean? You get me? Anyway, before we get to the show, um, I want to hawk some t-shirts. I just got those up last month. Got them done, got them on the website before Christmas, but not very long before Christmas. And uh, I've entered in a partnership with David over at adiac.com. That's A-D-A-Y-A-K.com to stock the t-shirts. He printed them up for me, and we are selling them over there. But you can also go to anormalcast.com and click on the t-shirt banner, and that'll take you right over there. The t-shirts are a great way to support the cause. I make a little money off of those. David makes a little money off of those, and you guys show your love, and people will go, hey, that's a great-looking shirt. What is that all about? 
and then you can go on and on about how great the podcast is. Also, you know, I convinced David to uh, stock these shirts because I was like, man, these these things will go. These things will sell. Take my word for it. So don't make me look like a tool. Buy some T-shirts. Get one for your for your peeps. Get something for mom. You know, she'll be stoked. And speaking of mom, don't make me get that email from adiac.com that says, yeah, we've only sold about 10 T-shirts to some woman in... Uh, Wisconsin that calls herself Enormo Mom. And if this venture goes well, then uh, maybe I'll invest in the Enorma Cast Rhinestone Unisex G string, which I think will be a hot item this spring when it warms up. All right, on episode 26, uh, episode 26 is heavy, but I think it's the most important show we've done over here. Kind of an important way to start the new year. Kevin Landolt is a young climber from Fort Collins, Colorado, who is in a fight for his life with leukemia. We were put in touch by a mutual friend of his, and Kevin courageously invited me down so that he could tell his story. Kevin is a young guy who wanted to talk about what it's like to fight for your life and also what it's like to fight for dignity in that struggle and how he uses climbing as a beacon, as a light at the end of that very long and dark tunnel. And perhaps Kevin's wisdom and his story will motivate us to fight a little harder in our lives for the things that are important. So go ahead and tie in, check your knot, lean back, and lose yourself in this conversation with Kevin Landel. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me over to uh, your apartment. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. We're going to go ahead and get started here. Kevin Landol. Yep. Dolt is right in there, just like the guy on on El Cap. Uh, Invited me down to Denver to hang out in his apartment. He is currently undergoing treatment for leukemia. At which hospital are we near? Um, At the moment, I'm getting treatment at Presbyterian St. Luke's Hospital, which is right here in downtown Denver. So we're just a couple blocks from there and sitting in his kitchen. I just came down to talk with him. He's a climber from Fort Collins and uh, he invited me down to kind of get into climbing, get into what he's facing with the disease and go from there. So you grew up in Fort Collins, Kevin? Yep. Born and raised. Born and raised in Fort Collins. Can you tell me about like what kind of kid you were and and how you got into the outdoors and eventually climbing? Yeah. You know, it's funny uh, listening to your podcast the other day with Mason Earl. Mm-hmm. felt like we might have a lot in common you know um, I was I'm an only child and I hated school you know I hated uh everything about school I remember um, when I was probably about seven or eight years old I'd watch this sh- the show it's Alex Lowe and uh maybe Hans sorry or and they were doing jump turns down this like Kular I think it was Somewhere in the Himalaya, you know, crazy shit. And anyway, like uh, next day at school, 
recess, man, I was I was doing jump turns down like this grassy hill. And uh, I'm like seven years old and the teachers are looking at me like, <laughs> you know, this kid might be uh, lost to right, say the least. <laughs> bound and, for trouble. I yeah, know. like I remember my parents got a call and they're like, you know, we think you're son might have some issues and i was like no man i was like jump turning i was linking jump turns down like a cooler like saw it on tv uh-huh and uh yeah so i don't know why i really got into climbing um nobody in my family climbs my mom and dad are both from new jersey of all places and uh they moved out here about 35 years ago just for a change of pace and i think they kind of fell in love with it right with the landscape and the community we have in Fort Collins. Yeah, growing up, um, neither one of them were particularly interested in climbing or, you know, any backcountry activity. But yeah, around seven years old, I just kind of really gravitated towards outdoor mm -hmm. activities. Um, I didn't like to participate in team sports in school. Um, my my family wasn't too apt to take me out climbing, although they would take me up to uh, like your your you spend some time in Fort Collins, like sure. Duncan's Ridge or uh, Torture Chamber, set up a top rope or something like that. They do for me, you know. But for the most part, it was just going to the gym, which uh -huh. at the time was um, Inner Strength Rock Gym. And you're is, how old right now? I'm 24 at the moment. Okay, so I was just trying to put it in perspective that you were like three or four when I went to school there. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because I went to Fort Collins because I grew up in the suburbs and I applied to Colorado State sight unseen because it was in Colorado. And I just did air quotes because when you live in the Midwest, like Colorado is all things outdoorsy. I have wistful and romantic ideas that probably aren't even true about arriving on campus for the first time, you know, and oh, there's Long's Peak and all those sorts of things. I'm sure I've you know, filled that memory in with a bunch of warm glow that wasn't actually there. But it's always occurred to me also having worked up in Estes Park, I think like, how can, how could someone not become a climber living in this town? But of course, you probably weren't exactly like, you know, in the hugely popular group of kids wanting to become a climber, even in a place like Fort Collins. Yeah, you know, um, it's funny. I ended up climbing at the gym, you know, it was kind of like the safe spot for my parents to drop me off. And like I said, they didn't climb. So we had malls, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> buildering. <laughs> so, so, um, yeah. So from like seven to, I don't know, 11, I was pretty into it. And, um, I competed for a few years with the JCCA, the junior climbing competition mm -hmm. association and did pretty well was a pretty good little sport climber there but you know deep down my interest in climbing was i think derived from reading you know classic mountaineering books and heroes like alex lowe and you know more the more the alpinist type of breed than the sport climber type of breed and so i kind of burned out on the gym and competition climbing about that time and kind of just did different stuff for a while uh trying to survive middle school and high school <laughs> but uh i was pretty fortunate when i was about 16 and inherited a car from my folks i got in a backcountry skiing okay so i man i ditched class and i drive up to cameron and you know i'd be up there touring earning some turns and uh, that kind of really got me into the mountains where i wanted to be mm -hmm. and so when i graduated from high school i uh 
ended up in Leadville, uh, Colorado Mountain College for okay. a couple of years. And that was a, that was a crazy experience, man. Um, you know, it was the same thing I was expecting to go up there and like meet all these other people, all these other individuals with similar interests like climbing and skiing. And man, it was like just total pothead central, you know, fucking Deadville. Right. You know, if you ever drive up there, it says, welcome to instead of uh, Leadville, Deadville, and it's got the Grateful Dead thing going right on. And I mean, it was a fun town. So that was a similar uh, issue that, that you mentioned Mason in the last interview. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah at Fort Lewis. And uh, I had the same problem at Fort Collins. Okay, so, so maybe it's just I was universal. on the outdoor adventure floor, <laughs> and there was 32 kids on the floor, and about you know six of them were into outdoor adventure, and the rest of them yeah. were... Hold up and fun, yeah. post it up, you know, in their rooms or whatever. So, yeah, I think it's universal that you have to look long and hard to find those, uh, those like minded individuals. So, mm-hmm. yeah, eventually it panned out. I had a really good experience up there. I, I formed a good group of friends that I still stay in touch with and, um, had some amazing instructors, one of whom was a AMGA mountain guide, mm-hmm. Mike Bromberg from, uh, Crested Butte, and he'd end up inviting me out to Chamonix a couple oh, wow. years later, and I spent some time out there climbing with him. That kind of spurred my alpine ambitions sure. as well. So, like the cradle of uh, the cradle of the beginnings of all that. Yeah, really. So, so all in all, Colorado Mountain College was a was a great move, and you know it was fun uh, heading heading out to the desert with friends. You know, doing canyoneering trips, uh-huh. doing backpacking trips, and. You know, I'd moved there for the skiing, but at the same time, I was beginning to realize the climbing potential. Like, mm-hmm. I, I was feeling that. Like I said, I climbed competitively when I was when I was younger, not even a teenager yet. And for all those years, that kind of lay dormant. But that ambition was back, and um, I was pretty psyched to uh, start climbing. Uh huh. So, I mean, how important was it for you that you kind of left town? I mean, it probably could have been pretty easy for you to go to CSU. If you wanted to go to college, um, but was that like a sort of a, a, a kind of crossing of the threshold to get out of town? Um, yeah, in a way, you know, uh, senior year of high school, I traveled around for a bit. I looked at some schools like St. John's College in Santa Fe, Prescott College out in Prescott, Arizona, and um, Western State in Gunnison. Right. Um, I think I was picking schools more for the locale. Sure. <laughs> and then. The, than the standard of education, but um, that's completely legitimate in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, you know, I wanted to get away from Fort Collins, but at the same time, I remember coming back from that initial trip of shopping for colleges, and I was pretty psyched on Fort Collins. You know, hour hour and twenty minutes up the road to Vitavu, forty five minutes to Lumpy Ridge. Mm-hmm. You know, all this great stuff up Poudre Canyon. I think it's a ideal location, uh, and I really like the town. I like the sense of community. You know, it doesn't seem to have that vibe that Boulder has, you know. It's a little more mellow, and mm-hmm. the climbing community is a, a little, probably smaller, less prevalent. Sure. Yeah, really good people, and I think it's a good location. Like I said, just, you know, just up down the road, really, from Rocky Mountain National Park, where I like to spend most of my time, so. Yeah, I mean, it, it for me, too, is like a, looking back, I mean, I didn't know the difference at the time, because, you know, I was from... from the land of shopping malls and car dealerships, but it was a great incubator in a way, you know, that where there wasn't a lot of pressure, but 
I would go to Boulder and you, you know, just walking into Neptune Mountaineering or, or, or at that time, the Boulder Mountaineer was like, it was overwhelming. Like these, it, it felt like they weren't giving me the time of day, but that was probably my inner voice. You know, they were probably treating me just like any customer, but I had this like chip on my shoulder that, oh my God, this is scary. These guys are rad. And, and Fort Collins, you know, just had this way mellower vibe in that mm-hmm. sense. So I appreciated it for sure in yeah. terms of that. And, and I did the same thing. Like, there's Vitavu there. It's Lumpy Ridge. Little dips into the park as I got better, and and uh, you become an all around climber. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you really do. You have uh, different types of rock and great local bouldering up at Horsetooth, and especially Laurie State Park, which I don't know if that was really big when you were there, but that seemed to blow up in the late '90s. Uh-huh. You know, um, and yeah, like uh, Arthur's Rock man has some incredible bouldering up there. It just blows me away how close that stuff is to, is to town, you know, and it's uh-huh. a completely different rock than the, what is it like uh, Morrison sandstone or sure. Dakota sandstone that we have around horse tooth. So yeah, I think it's a, it's a good town and I was, I was happy to still am happy to live there. Yeah. So you're stuck in Denver right now um, for the convenience of being close to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose we should get into that. So you're 24 now been reading on your blog uh, this a fight has been going on for about 14 months or about 15 now Six, going on 16 going months on 16 months so <laughs> so you're at in leadville and well actually um i, I had moved back to fort collins okay. after yeah. after leadville i was working for the city doing horticulture work mm-hmm. um in the summers and going to school part-time in the winters at front range community college and uh basically just climbing a shit ton right you know i mean that's i was just really into it and having a really good time. Like I said, man, um, in middle school, high school, I hated it, you know, and I always said, like, when I get out of high school, it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. Life is going to be awesome. And, uh, it really was there for like five years, you know, going up to Leadville and skiing all the time and then getting back into climbing. And, uh, yeah, I liked my job and was in no hurry to really do anything academically. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was just kind of dedicating myself to climbing, to, to training for climbing, maybe entertaining the notion of, you know, trying to be a good climber, make, making that work somehow. Uh-huh. Spent a lot of time up in Rocky Mountain National Park. I was really fortunate to have some great mentors. Yeah, I was about to ask you that. Who were you climbing up there with? Yeah, so I'd, I'd say my first mentor m- mentorship began with um, a CMS guy that you might actually know, Ed Crothers. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, sure. Old Ed Crothers. um awesome guy. Um, when I was kind of getting into climbing for the second time when I was older, my parents, you know, wanted me to take a class. I ended up taking a class or two with Ed and, uh, we kind of became friends and we'd end up climbing and ski touring a bit together. And that was great. And I was probably 18, 19 at the time. Sure. And, um, and then, yeah, at Colorado Mountain College, I met, uh, Mike Bromberg, awesome guy. And, uh, when I got back to Fort Collins, though, and I was kind of, you know, had this desire to be an alpine climber, mm-hmm. I was having a hard time finding partners with similar interests, you know, like a lot of people, I think, go up to the park expecting to find these like long ice climbs and shit. And oftentimes there's no ice, <laughs> like, you know, it's just how it is. And right. um, I think you, you really have to embrace this uh, motto of, well, it doesn't have to be in to be in, Sure, you know, it's just going to be some grovelly dry tooling and it's just an adventure. It's fun to get out there. And, um, I think the people that enjoy that stuff are, are small, 
small hardy breed uh, individuals. And I was lucky enough to meet Doug Shepard, mm-hmm. who at the time was uh, finishing up his PhD at CSU. And he kind of dragged me out after it. And I learned a, learned a heck of a lot from him. And um, also met Chris Sheridan in Boulder, mm-hmm. who's, yeah, just awesome weekend warrior man just like every weekend up in the park sure you know doesn't matter what season always up there just loves it loves the place and is is a great climber especially uh on some of that mixed terrain Mm -hmm. so all of a sudden i kind of had had a good group of people i had doug chris sheridan and then my friend ryan malarkey who i had who i had met on mountain project we were kind of similar similar skill set and similar ambitions, and um, I could go out with Doug and learn, like learn a heck of a lot, and never, never feel like I had to lead something that I didn't feel comfortable leading. Uh-huh. You know, um, it was pretty amazing. Some of the routes I got up, two seasons in the park, two winners, I should say, I made it up some really like incredible climbs, climbs that people wait years and years for. You know, uh-huh. like I climbed uh, Vanquished with Doug and. Went up on Stetner's, an icy Stetner's ledges once with Doug, and you know all, all these great routes, brain freeze, uh, routes on McHenry's, and routes on Otis, and uh, so all these routes calling me, and three partners, one like the mentor, one Chris Sheridan, who whenever I went with him, I'd I'd learn from him, but I'd also be pushed. You know, he'd hand mm-hmm. me over the rack uh, at the end of his lead, mm-hmm. and um, I found myself progressing pretty quickly and then i had uh my friend ryan malarkey um we can go out and we could push one another sure you know and it was this great time because i felt like i could learn a lot i could go climbing with chris and be pushed to you know excel to new levels and then i could go out with ryan and we could push one another and, mm-hmm. and grow as a team and so they were some of the best best climbing days of my of my life really i just got really into climbing in the park i say i became fairly competent at dry tooling uh and just climbing on mixed mixed terrain um and say i've climbed like considerable amount of like uh m6 terrain and i've still never been the veil i've still never clipped a bolt for mixed climbing right. of any sort you know it was just kind of the adventure of these routes is awesome right. you know like go up on howlets when it's pasted fucking white you know it looks like mm-hmm. something out of scotland and you're just looking like man this is beautiful and uh just chasing little ephemeral streaks of ice here and there just going you know going soloing uh soloing easy goalies like martha's goalie or these fun ridges in winter you know it's just just a great place i really fell in love with uh climbing in rocky mountain national park and i had a good group of friends and mentors um who made that possible well, I sort of claimed to, to, you know, know everything about climbing that there ever was, but I'm not an alpine climber. You know, I've read plenty. I have friends that are, but listening to you talk about that mentorship, I mean, that stuff has to still exist in that realm because you can't learn how to do this any other way. Yeah. Rock climbing, you know, there's all different paths now to climbing. And uh, my first reference to back in the day is that, you know, back in the day, that's how you learn how to rock climb too, was, was a system of mentors. And the way you just put it, was almost revelatory to me that, yeah, you do need kind of multiple people at multiple levels for, for different types of advancement. So that was, I mean, certainly lucky that that worked out that way, that you had these three people that fit that mold whose personalities that you 
you obviously meshed with and uh you know that that does seem like a little charmed moment yeah for you so yeah it was pretty cool and i realized you know just the sense of uh sense of achievement could be greater while climbing with my friend ryan you know the roots that we were getting up together pushing ourselves on and say you know getting rope gunned up some some harder route yeah for sure i didn't lead the crux or you know i didn't climb my share of the pitches sure because, sure yeah i mean you're you're in the back of your mind you're like okay this i'm subbing here I, yeah you know, I, yeah right. which is good because i feel like i learned mm-hmm. so much you know just learn an incredible incredible amount of stuff mm-hmm. really quickly uh thanks to mm-hmm. thanks to folks like uh mike and doug and you know the conception of it from laying in bed at night going wait a minute what if we could climb this to grabbing your bro that your partner's with or you're on the same level and going and doing it, that's obviously the most satisfying thing, even if it's not as maybe rad on a piece of paper as, as what you climbed with, with the guy who was rope gunning for you. So yeah. I mean that's just a normal progression, I think. Yeah, definitely. So So let's go to the end of that. So this is your your moment where you were, you know, yeah, leading, so, um, leading your charm moment and obviously it kind of starts to crash down. Yeah. Um probably 21 22 at this time and um yeah for whatever reason i don't seem to stay that psyched in the summertime right. it's weird <laughs> it's like uh i'll get up to the park to climb some some alpine rock routes some classics and stuff but i really had a hankering for uh the climbing in the winter mm-hmm. and um i was just really into it there for a while and so as i was approaching uh 23 i started um bouldering a lot i kind of i kind of got into like the the training aspect of things like i knew i could progress i knew i could be climbing harder and i started bouldering a lot which which was a great experience for me um to find all this excellent bouldering so close to so close to four columns Mm -hmm. and um i really realized the like the amount of frustration that i had experienced maybe you know, hiking for 12 hours in the park, freezing my ass off and not climbing a thing, you know, week after week because sure. of whatever, you know, it just happens. I felt that same frustration going on some of these bouldering projects, you know, and I was really getting into them. And yeah, I was a, you know, I, I was a pretty weak rock climber, but I set the goal of climbing like V7, V8 over, over the course of the summer. And um, to my surprise, I, I started climbing really hard. I, I started flashing, uh, you know, V6s, climbing V7s pretty easily, climbing a couple of V8s, and um, got excited to go up to the park with my newfound confidence and, yeah, climb the diamond for the first time, climb Birds of Fire with mm-hmm. my friend Chris Terrell, which was, mm-hmm. yeah, a route that had been on, on my mind a long time, and that was a route that I, I felt like I had aspired to, and um, so it felt really good to climb that and... Uh, yeah, climb the diamond and just kind of getting into rock climbing mm-hmm. uh, for the sake of rock climbing. Yeah, so just really fit, happy, psyched. And then about September 1st of 2011, I kind of just started to feel like I had a cold, like a sore throat um, that wasn't going away. Um, over the course of the next three weeks, I'd go to the doctor about three times and it was like I had all these little infections going on. You know, they weren't improving. I was just kind of sick, and nothing was making me better. And um, finally, after 
three weeks of, you know, like I was starting to miss work and, uh, I just felt awful. It felt like I couldn't get out of bed. Um, finally drew blood and they found, a you know, an elevated white count, which is indicative of leukemia. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sitting there, uh, at home, just kind of like, I had some Percocet from, uh, <laughs> From uh, uh, some of the shit that I was experiencing, I was in a lot of pain. I had these awful mouth sores, and so I got some Percocet, and I was kind of just perking out with a few beers. And uh, then I, you know, still assuming that this is just a virus, I'm gonna get through this, whatever. And then I got the call from that doctor, and he's like, "Yeah, shit, you should, you know, we've made arrangements, like go to the hospital now." Mm-hmm. And it was like, it was just kind of like a moment of silence. They're like, "Uh." shit (laughs) you know kind of uh so i mean i've only seen my dad like cry a couple times in his lifetime and this is one of those times he came home and he was sobbing yeah it was pretty emotional and so i ended up at uh pvh in fort collins um where i did like the initial induction round of chemotherapy Uh it's called and uh during that time i developed a pretty bad uh infection called tephalitis, which is uh, an infection in the colon. So when you're going through chemotherapy and all your, you know, your cells are, are dying from the chemotherapy and your white cells die, which prevent infections. So you're high, you're at high risk for, you know, serious infections to Mm -hmm. occur. And, um, I ended up with this tephalitis, which is awful, basically a bacteria that was like eating its way through my colon. And, um, yeah, so I was pretty sick there for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I was awful, man. I one of the things I I think I wrote about it on the blog. I might not have yet, but um, was the memory of I was I was shitting blood or pissing blood or right. you know whatever like every fifteen minutes, and uh, they sent they sent this nurse up from the ICU unit to hold the bedpan, dude, and she was right. so hot. and I'm like. <laughs> you know, if this can get any worse, right, man? It's like, here, 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 this fucking beautiful, sweet nurse is like, she's probably my age and she's holding the, the bedpan. Thanks. Right. You know, I'm shitting blood into it and uh, oh, just like, just kill me now, right? And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so I was I was a pretty sick pup there. And I didn't know if I was going to pull through that. I had to write like a will. and Right. And, uh, but anyway, I made it through that, and like I said, lost a lot of weight. Um, and then I proceeded to go through, I want to say, three or four consolidation rounds of chemotherapy at Presbyterian Saint or at PVH. And um, all this was in anticipation of um, a bone marrow transplant. Okay. So for for AML leukemia and a lot of different types of blood cancers, like the cures kind of uh is labeled as a stem cell or a bone marrow transplant okay with my disease and the genetics of the disease i needed a donor like an unrelated donor because okay. i don't have siblings siblings would be the first two would possibly donate if, right uh, if their genetic matches but uh being an only child i had to go on the um, be the match kind of registry and within a few weeks they found a match uh, a 10 out of 10 match, and the only information they'd tell me was he was a young male and in Poland. <laughs> so so I got some Polish stem cells, 
in me. And uh, basically for the bone marrow transplant, what they do is they give you lethal doses of chemotherapy to kill your bone marrow, you know, to try and like literally kill it and to kill the cancer. And, uh, and right after they do that, they basically give you the stem cells. Right. And it's just like an IV. So they're like... They're, it's just like a bag of blood, gravity-fed mm-hmm. into you. Cells so where to go. they're getting rid of what's in there. It's like an oil change. And they're putting in the new cells that hopefully will be robust enough to, to finish it off. Right, yeah, because basically the problem with cancer is, right, your immune system is not recognizing like a multiplying cell when it should be recognizing sure. it and killing it. So the stem cell or bone marrow transplant, you're, you're starting off with a new immune system, and you're okay. hoping that this immune system recognizes that cancer as a cancer and kills it. Basically, stem cell transplant, the idea is to kill everything in you with chemotherapy to give you the cells, which will give you a new immune system. And hopefully with this new immune system, cells, the donor's cells, recognize the cancer sure. and kill that cancer. So it's pretty rough. Uh, it's a pretty rough procedure though, because you're getting those fatal doses of chemotherapy. And I was in the hospital down here for 36 days, I want to say. So they're, they're in essence, I guess, almost killing you. Yeah. Like yeah. right to the edge. Mm-hmm. And then... Yeah, you like be when dead you're without those right cells when you're to, you're right there, they're gonna try to bring you back with this with this transplant. Mm-hmm. So it's like yeah, it's like beating you to the inch of your life, and then okay, let's try to get you to heal up now. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's kind of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> they put you they put you in this yeah, like kind of this like special floor for bone marrow and. Uh, like it's air pressurized, you know, like everybody wears masks and gloves and these like yellow robes and uh, just it's like really alienating, isolating for the, experience. For the moment, your immune system is gone. It's gone. Yeah. So they can't any sort of, you know, possible uh, interjection of, of, of a pathogen, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. So, so right. Yeah. So you're in this place where, yeah, you. You're like a lab experiment. Yeah. I got a little gung-ho, and at one point I filled up my pack with, like, 25-pound weights. And I uh, I went to the stairwell and was uh, was trying to do uh, lunges and, like, box jumps and shit. And, uh, and that lasted for about five days, and then they just started puking too much. And But the doctors were impressed. They are like, yeah. All right. <laughs> and I had pictures, you know, of all the clients and shit. They didn't strap do. you down to the bed? No. No. I just had a, I kept the stoke up, man. Uh-huh. I had got, like, the Fred Becky uh, Best Climbs in North America book and uh-huh. all that shit to keep me psyched. And, uh-huh. um, yeah. So I tried to I tried to stay very positive because uh, at the time I was looking at this bone marrow transplant as being the end sure. of this nightmare. And uh, that I could re- return to climbing and return to life. And uh, so I was in remission for about, just over four months. And um, can I ask you about the, the books, these posters, this mm-hmm. sort of stuff? So were, there, were you interacting with other people around you that were in the same, same situation at all? You know, I really wasn't. Right. I think because of the immunosuppressant aspect. You're just kept. In You're a just room by, by yourself. yourself. Yeah, so. I was curious. I mean, I've been in the hospital uh, for much more minor things, and 
right? I was just curious if there were other people around and, and, uh, but so you're, you're focusing on this climbing thing is, and we talked about this before the show, um, as part of, part of why you asked me to come down here, um, and talk about this. So this climbing thing obviously is playing this sort of central role in trying to keep you psyched. It's what's got you on the stairs with weight. Yeah. Um, Can you elaborate at all on that in terms of one aspect to, to consider is that being a climber, especially being the type of climber that I was like, you know, I was drawn to, I think roots that had a bit of danger in them, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I tried to defy, define myself by the roots that I climbed and the roots that I wanted to climb. Sure. And it's always been like that mental, that mental aspect of climbing is what attracts me to it uh-huh. much more so than the physical, uh, aspect. Like, like climbing to me isn't about having fun. Like, you know, the types of routes that I want to do, that I aspire to do, right, are are dangerous, hard routes. Mm-hmm. You know, like I really want to climb several routes in the Fisher Towers. You know, and several routes up in the park that I wouldn't say are fun routes. I think they're going to be scary and hard. You know, and sure. it's going to take a lot of like a mental struggle to uh, climb those routes and. Like I said, I don't. I think it's that adventure aspect. Uh huh. So, and I began free soloing pretty regularly on easy stuff when um, I got into climbing, uh-huh. and uh, um, I'm writing a piece right now on my blog about uh, a solo that kind of went awry in Chamonix. So, soloing regularly and climbing, it was like for at least me, I always had like a sense of my own mortality. So I went into this cancer experience, like having thought a lot about death, mm-hmm. like I've been, I've been caught in a couple of, uh, slab avalanches in my time. Um, I've been pretty fortunate climbing. I haven't had any incidents, but you know, there've been moments where I've maybe pushed it a little too far and stuff. And I've definitely spent a lot of time thinking about death, you know, and I don't know if that makes me a morbid person or not. I guess it does, but even like. In uh, with a literary sense, you know, mm-hmm. the types of literature that I'm attracted to and stuff. I love, I love that. I had spent a considerable amount of time, you know, thinking about my own death and that possibility. Certainly, I mean, if you're an alpine climber, even at a young age, you're naive if you're not considering it. And frankly, if you have a, a, a long career in it, you made it to 23 without any serious tragedy, but. You know by reading the literature that even a weekend alpine climber, eventually some cohort of yours is going to die in mountains. You know, it's it's just an odds game, and if you get if you get to thirty five or whatever, and it hasn't happened to you, your its group of friends must be tiny because it starts to spider out, and eventually somebody goes. I'm not an alpine climber, and I've had more than I'd care to think about in terms of friends pass away in the mountains. So yeah, it's, a, it's I mean, it's a morbidity perhaps by definition, but certainly you'd have to be super naive not to, to look up into the park and realize that those are dangerous routes. Yeah. And, um, it was funny while I was in the hospital, a few people I've met over the, over the years died. Um, one was, uh, Steve Romeo, the Teton AT guy, mm-hmm. um, up in, up in Jackson. And he was killed in an avalanche 
while skiing with a good friend up there. And uh, Jack Roberts, who I'd spent a good day climbing with in the park, died. Sure. And uh, so I had, you know, kind of had a different perspective. Everybody was like, right, rightfully so, to mourn. And I mean, that's that's cool and stuff. But you know, being in a in a cancer ward and, and watching all these all these people uh, my age, younger, older, but just dying of this disease, like. Sure. I really felt like these guys were fortunate to die doing what they love to do. You know, um, you know, some people think that's cliche and uh, kind of a hollow response. But you know, I, I think those people really are fortunate who do die quickly doing what they enjoy. I mean, they knew what they were doing was dangerous. They had taken risks all their lives, right? Mm-hmm. I mean. And, fortunate, uh, fortunate versus what you were watching happen. Exactly. And perhaps yeah. that's when that's when the cliche goes away mm-hmm. because the rest of us can't necessarily imagine this sterilized environment, this alienated environment that you're in, which is the absolute universal human opposite of being in the mountains. Yeah, totally. And um, I remember talking to my friend Doug Shepard about this, and and he. He said, yeah, but, you know, so few people have your perspective mm-hmm. and it's, and it's true. Like, um, just being surrounded by so much death for so long, 16 months now and, uh, and confronting it, mm-hmm. you know, I think it has kind of, it's had an impact and, uh, yeah, when I, when I hear about people that I know or know of who, who die in the mountains, I, I, I feel like they're pretty fortunate um, to, to be dying, you know, uh, uh, in beautiful places, sure. you know, doing what they love as opposed to just, uh, wasting away in a hospital bed. Mm. I'm going to need some of that in a minute too. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Just getting her cry on. <laughs> <laughs> Just thinking about my friends, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, everybody. Some people love to hear that, man. Some people some people hate it, like talking to family members of people who have been killed. Like, I say, well, at least they died doing what they loved. You know, some family members have a hard time with well, that. Well, it's, it's, it's a tricky use of the word fortunate in that. They would say, well, if they were fortunate, they wouldn't be dead at all, you know. So, but, you know, as a comparison, as, as a, a, to to put it against what you were watching in there. So, yeah. So at this point, you're, you've got your bone marrow transplant. So you're focusing on becoming a climber again. And we talked a little bit about hope, this idea of hope beforehand, um, which is this very, very prickly subject, I think, if, if we, when, when we get into it, but, You've got hope right now. You're you're looking at okay. This is a cure. Yeah. There's a good chance, or there's you know I don't know. They probably laid out percentages. Yeah. Um, but they don't. You know, percentages, especially for young people. Yeah. They give. They gave my doctor gave me about a seventy percent chance of you know uh, reaching a long term remission. Uh, get on the internet though, and it's like you know I see fifty fifty. I you know, 40, did 50. get on the internet. And yeah. Look, and yeah, it's all over the map. So can I clarify something, though, sort of scientifically? There's cure. There's remission. You know, you're regardless sort of stuck with this thing. Right. Floating around in you. And it's whether or not it, it, it goes into a state of, of 
a, a benign state versus disappearing altogether? Or can, so, you, can you sort of yeah, get into so the science I've, of it? I'm sure, sir, sir, you're well-versed at this point in the science yeah, of it. Yeah, after so. a bone marrow transplant or an allogenic stem cell transplant, the majority of relapses occur within the first six months, the first year, um, the first two years. You make it to two years, it's unlikely that you'll relapse, which okay. is good. So... Um, you know, there's people out there now who've had uh, stem cell transplants in the 80s and are, are doing fine. Okay. So it's it's pretty crazy stuff. Can I, was I, like, can I ask you one more scientific question? Sure. And then we'll move into that. And this isn't cosmic, it's scientific, but why you? Do, yeah, Where, where does right? it come from? Yeah. I mean, so, obviously there's a cosmic question there too, but what, what causes? I mean, is there a cause? Is it is it lurking in your in your DNA somewhere or... or do you have any idea or does, do no they idea. have any idea? Not really. No, no, no family history, no environmental factors that would have right. contributed kind of out of the blue, you know, mm-hmm. and it's one and of is those. That, is that, I mean, saying, is that normal? Yeah. Like for, that this just... type of, for this, yeah, for leukemia in young people, that's mm-hmm. typically the case. Yeah. So that, that's an interesting thing though, because, um, another friend of mine who's, who's a really good climber, climbing partner of mine. A little older than me, maybe 25, 26. He uh, was a really talented climber and a good guy. And um, he got accepted to med school out in Maine. And he ended up, I don't know, he jumping jumping into a swimming pool at a party or something. And he broke his neck. Okay. And he's paralyzed from the neck down now. And I, and I often wonder, like, what's worse? Like, to have a reason? Like, I made decisions that put me here. Sure. Or for the cancer thing, it's like... What the fuck? Like, there's no, you know, I don't, I didn't do anything, you know. It's kind of sure. so that's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Is it is it better to have, you know, like reasons to dwell on or just accept the banality of it, you know? Right. Like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. Versus, what just, did I do? Yeah, yeah. this sort of universe conspiring. Yeah. So that's one interesting thing about cancer, um, especially in young people. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the effects or the uh, at least short-term benefits of this bone marrow transplant. Yeah. So you started climbing again. I did, yeah. Um, so I was supposed to stay, like, indoors, you know, not do anything for the first 100 days. And I was losing my mind, man. I was, I was going insane. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had my mom drive me down to um, a little spot in the springs called... Uh, I think it's called like Red Rock Open Space or something mm-hmm. down there where they have all these bolted easy sport climbs and um, yeah, like my first day there, man, I was so weak. I I led a like a five six and a five seven, you know, mm-hmm. and was huffing and puffing my way up them, mm-hmm. and but it felt so good. It felt so good to get back on the rock, and um, then I went back a week later, and you know, just kind of slowly stepped it up five five eights, five nines, and it, yeah, it was, felt really good. It was like I remembered how to climb, mm-hmm. you know, which is a really cool feeling. Like I was wondering if that would muscle memory would come back because I take a lot of like, a lot of thought in my in my movements and I try and climb as smoothly, you know. I try and have a little bit of style, mm-hmm. and uh, it was like that stuff was still there. I could still climb. I just didn't have any strength. So over a period of time, I continued to do well. Uh, went back home to Fort Collins and. Uh, Started climbing down in Boulder, 
canyon on occasion. Um, but at that time, I kind of I realized that like this this process of recovery was going to take take longer than I had anticipated. Um, like studies have recently suggested to truly recover from a bone marrow transplant takes three to five years. Okay. I mean, you know, just your, your body's wrecked. And um, so I, uh, I kind of took on like an attitude of, well, I'm, I'm just going to climb. Like I might not be able to climb as hard as I want to be mm-hmm. able to climb, but I'm going to get out as much as I can sure. and uh, just enjoy it. And uh, that's what I did for, for a couple of months there. And yeah, until, until I, re- I relapsed, unfortunately, in July, just mm-hmm. over four months from the transplant, which was uh, kind of, it was a bad week. I got to tell the story. It it, it was a bad week. (laughs) So so anyway, yeah, I don't know. Some girl broke my heart, right? Uh, It happens. Bought a 12-pack. Drove up Poudre Canyon to go fly fishing. Mm -hmm. It's 4th of July. Driving back into town. DUI checkpoint, which I attempt to evade. Get chased. Crash my truck in a <laughs> in a water electric compound, like in this field, and yeah, I just remember like the cops running across the field to get Holy me, shit. and I'm like, this this is some this is gonna be some night, you know, like like uh, holy shit and like should i do go for like suicide by cop here or what like oh man dude yeah I'm, yeah, I was all messed up, and uh like a week after that, I got the call that I I had relapsed, dude. Ugh. So it was like to quote uh, Kelly Cortez, like a bad country western song, you know, and like just one thing after another is like everything was going wrong, and uh, it was a shitty couple of weeks. Holy <laughs> crap! I'm like I'm like <laughs> I'm gonna need a massage after this. That made me tense. Yeah. So just at that like time, piling on. <laughs> so at that time, I was like you know considering suicide as like a viable option because you know the shit storm it's a shit storm and like treatment options after relapsing from a bone marrow transplant aren't that promising sure so i was like oh man i'm just gonna i'm just gonna like hitchhike down to utah escalante country and like walk into some crazy canyon and uh, lay down and die. And uh, that had kind of been, like, my plan, I think, all along. Like, I, if I relapsed, that was my plan because I didn't want to go through any of this anymore. Sure. And um, family and, and everything else uh, convinced me to, to give it another go. And um, so I've been in treatment since I relapsed. Been in the hospital, out of the hospital, and back in it since since July. Uh-huh. And uh, I've kind of just kind of gotten to a, a state of resignation, I feel like, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, before, when I was first going through this, before the bone marrow transplant and everything, like, it was hard for me to think about climbing because I wanted it so bad. Um, sure. That it's hard for me to, like, make plans or anything like that. And uh, that's kind of changed. Like, now I'm like... I'm at peace. I'll either die or I'm going to like climb for uh-huh. the rest of my days, uh-huh. you know? So it's like, I can put myself through a lot at the prospect of just driving around and climbing uh-huh. for the rest of my days. So 
I have that like that hope uh-huh. to climb again. It's is really important and paramount in my life at the moment. And uh, yeah, it's funny what we can get ourselves through, you know, if we uh, if we have some light at the end of the tunnel. We started talking just barely on emails, and our emails have been just mostly, uh, you know, logistics. Like, hey, when can we meet? When can I get down here? But the one thing I did do was was go back and read your blogs, and we've been sort of bringing it up. And uh, Kelly Cordes is the guy who told me, like, oh, you got to go back and read this stuff. And they're short. There's not that many entries. Uh, there was a, a initial entry in March, and then um, a big gap to September, which you just sort of filled in why that was, besides your uh, obvious. Uh, legal problems but (laughs) you know they're obviously this was the darkest time and then they they pick back up in september the one thing i've noticed in those and if you don't mind me using those as sort of a talking point uh because it is sort of a communal thing that we we do share since i don't know you that well is is that oscillation of you know most of them have both this little bit of hope in them you do talk about this connection to the natural world, even though you're not climbing, you're out in it. You're the ones about being in your backyard, I believe in the sun and, and the Poudre Canyon things in there. And, uh, you do talk about that stuff, but then, you know, it oscillates and there is a lot of darkness and there is sort of peering into that. Um, you bring up Nietzsche, um, a nihilism, you bring up, uh, just kind of a lot of nighttime, a lot of darkness sort of Im- imagery. So, is that writing on that blog, I mean, or expressing these ideas therapeutic or do you find them, I mean, do you walk away from these things exhausted? I mean, it almost feels like that would be the case. Yeah. Um, I'd have to say both, you know, it's been very therapeutic and, uh, I feel like I've learned a lot about myself through the writing process, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's been, you know, exhausting, uh, dealing with it, you know, facing it. Um, I think a lot of people who, uh, go through cancer treatment at at a young age, they, they survive it and they go on and, uh, you know, kind of becomes a dark subject matter for them and, uh, they don't face it, you Uh know? And so from the beginning I've, I've attempted to, to face it and grow with it and learn, as much about myself as I could just through journaling uh-huh. and starting the blog. And, uh-huh. uh, I think it's been really beneficial for me just to, you know, I get like inspired at moments to, to sit down and write. Mm-hmm. And, um, some of the writing that's come out of it has been, yeah, just really beneficial for me to read and better understand myself. And so the subject matter generally again is is outdoors oriented and or climbing oriented um the most recent post you actually reposted something that you you had submitted to alpinist did they print that um no actually they're debating apparently the winner of that contest and okay uh hasn't been announced yet yeah, i was but. just curious because it, it's it's an awesome short piece about why uh why you rock climb? I mean, why you ice climb? Yeah, that was fun. I like how uh, you know they limited the words to like five hundred words mm-hmm. or something, and it was like kind of a challenge. You know, such a it's such a deep question. Like, why do you ice climb? And sure. uh, my response, I felt, was pretty deep. And to limit it to five hundred words was a challenge, but a good exercise, a discipline there. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed that. So, 
in terms of your outlook right now and in terms of what you're dealing with, which is you're doing daily chemo? Yeah, um, at the moment I'm um, I'm on a drug called Videza, um, which is a chemo, and I get that seven days straight. Um, I'm on my third round of that stuff, and uh, I'm also on a drug called Serafinib, which is a biologic drug. Um, and at the end of the week, I'll be getting my second DLI, which is a donor leukocyte infusion, um, which I get more cells okay. from the guy who donated uh, uh-huh. his bone marrow to me. They're stored at the hospital. And that is, again, an attempt to um, create some type of graft versus leukemia effect. And uh, yeah, at the moment, I'm struggling with a persistent cancer and, uh-huh. and the goal is to um, get back into remission and possibly do another bone marrow transplant from a different individual. Okay. So where, just to bring it kind of back to the climbing thing I was talking about with on, on your blog, you explain, you know, the motivation to keep focused on climbing and during your, your original bone marrow transplant, um, you sound like, or it seems like you were at least somewhat confident that you were going to climb again. And that was a goal at the end. Like I said, you even, you know, inspiring you to walk up and down some stairs with, with a pack on. Yeah. So where does it fit in now? I mean, is it the same sort of motivation? Um, you know, can you elaborate on that at all? Yeah. Um, I think in some ways I've kind of been relieved from any like youthful ambitions that I had in the past, you mm-hmm. know, um, uh, like, you know, going to the gym, I always used to feel like the strong guy. You know, I could take my shirt off and shout a little bit, like, right. try and impress the ladies. <laughs> and I don't think that's going to be happening, you know, anytime soon. Like, um, I'm more than content and more than happy to go climb like a 5.6 or a 5.7 up at Lumpy uh-huh. or in the park. Like, just getting out there. Um, one of my favorite quotes is a Rolando uh, Garibaldi quote. It's, uh, alpinism is unmitigated contact with the natural world. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I climb. And, uh, it's just the way that I, um, best enjoy experiencing my, the landscapes that I, you know, consider home, the mountains and deserts. And so I'm just happy to climb and, uh, it really is the light at the end of the tunnel for me. Like, uh, you know, there's just so much shit you can put yourself through, you know, mm-hmm. like month after month after month, just with the hope of climbing again sure. and, uh, yeah, getting, getting strong again. And, um, so it's been hard re- relating that to other people though. You know, people think like, why are you, you know, why do you, what keeps you going through mm-hmm. so much? And it's like, you know, man, I've blown like my social security checks on like pitons, you know, cause I'm going to fucking go to the fishers right, and like right. hammer my way up a route. Like that's, right. that's like the number one reason, man. There's just like one route, uh, in the fishers that I tried a couple of years ago and got absolutely spanked on. And, uh, so yeah, like I have these goals, these routes in mind and, um, trips in mind. I, my truck was salvageable from the accident. Oh, okay. Now sports is sexy little topper on it. Right so, on. So, you know, I've got like the road trip planned. 
You know, I was thinking that I've been thinking about this a lot since since I got in touch with you, which is about a month ago, and um, that was through a friend of yours, uh, Doug, that you mentioned earlier. And you know, obviously, I've been kind of running around in my head, like, what are we going to talk about? And there's this line that people use, and I've used it even when sort of talking about you with some other folks. I said, oh, I can't even imagine what he's going through. But then I started to think about it, and you know, obviously, I can't. I haven't gone through anything like it. But what we talked about earlier with the, the facing of danger and what's at the other end of danger, which is a possible death in the mountains or whatever. And while I'm a rock climber, it's still there. Yeah. And, you know, so part of me, I guess, in a way does imagine, you know, facing that. What I, what I guess I, I probably have trouble wrapping my head around is this is the slowness of what you're dealing with. Yeah. You know, because obviously the mountains... There's this maybe, oh, this, this route has a potential to be deadly. And then there's moments where it's screaming at you because, oh, I'm, this is it. You know, I'm, I'm scraping off of this or I'm falling off of this. Or, but the, the slowness of it is what I don't think I can wrap my head around. And, and can you sort of, you know, I don't know if you can even tell me a little bit about that or, or whether that contrast to climbing hasn't been helpful. Um. Yeah, well, like I was saying before, I think just having those moments where prior to my diagnosis, I had spent a lot of time contemplating my own mortality mm -hmm. and accepting it was hugely beneficial mm -hmm. in this process. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's definitely the crux of the experience is the length of time, like the uncertainty, mm -hmm. you know, at least initially I had this like roadmap of treatment, like bone marrow transplant at the end of it and after that i figured you know every day out would be towards healing and stuff and uh with this relapse it's just been uh like you know 16 months now of uh of mental turmoil turmoil i guess mm -hmm. i could say because you know i'm just physically so weak from the chemo or mm -hmm. sick from the chemo and uh you know, you have to consider your your standard of living, and when you're going through cancer treatment, it just goes out the window. Right. So, um, so yeah, it's been hard, but like I said, just having that light at the end of the tunnel, the mm -hmm. uh, the possibility of climbing again. All right. Well, what do the next few months look like? Um. Yeah. You know, I'm eligible. For a couple of uh, research drug trials that mm -hmm. I've been looking into, mm -hmm. which are showing some promise, and uh, but yeah, hopefully, I mean, hopefully, this current regime of drugs that I'm on will will do something, or the DLI will do something, and I'll be headed towards remission. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's kind of first things first, getting remission, and then consider another another transplant and. Uh, Hopefully that's it, mm -hmm. but you know we'll see, see how it goes. So have you gotten? I mean, what has the support been from you know your climbing friends or the climbing community? Has that been helpful to you at all? Yeah, um, hugely so. You know, in the beginning it was actually kind of worrisome to me because I realized that like shit, all my friends are climbers. <laughs> like you know they're climbing partners. Like uh 
God, I've been pretty antisocial. I've lived in the same town forever. And like, you know, mm-hmm. I don't have any friends other than climbing partners. And, um, as time, time has gone on though, uh, yeah, these guys have, have remained, you know, really supportive and, uh, really encouraging and yeah, it just really goes to show the, you know, what we, what we learn and experience on, uh, when you're tied to a rope on a cliff, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, yeah, I think, although I've spent relatively little time with some of these people, I consider them my, uh, best friends. Right. You know? Well, as we're, as we're going through this and, and I'm thinking about your writing, I'm thinking about all the things we've been saying, the, the sort of platitudes and the cliches are like landmines in what we're talking about. But it's fascinating that, you know, you've been stripped so raw and the situation's been stripped so raw. It's like they work, you know, they're cliche or they're platitudes because they're true probably mm-hmm. because we say them all the time. And here's another one, you know, this like, connection that you have with your climbing partners you know it's like i i can read about that in a column in rock and ice magazine and roll my eyes yeah but here we are like you've been stripped down to it and it's like so true (laughs) yeah it's like you know know, man yeah it's incredible um just what a few a few great days in the mountains together can really forge a powerful friendship you know and uh yeah, I've experienced nothing but great support and encouragement from the climbing community. And, uh, yeah, I'm really grateful and appreciate it. And you just mentioned to me that one of the aspects that was really difficult about this is going from such an independent, outdoorsy, you know, one man against the mountains to back in with your parents. And yeah. So, you know, what you maybe bring up what that's been like. Um, yeah, so I'm an only child, like I said before, and, uh, I've always gotten along really well with my parents. Um, they were never too psyched on the climbing thing, but all in all, they're good folks and it's been, it's been a hell on them. Right. You know, um, like, well, I, I was thinking about that. Like, uh, it's almost like the, the, the metaphor is like the chemo is through everyone. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. wiping you out physically. But mentally, it's like, I mean, it, it must have been like a bomb going off and sort of splattering everybody around you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, my parents, I, I, I think, have done remarkably well. They've been, you know, supportive. Uh, it, it's, you know, like down here, I need a full-time caregiver. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, my mom will come down during the week. She works weekends up in Fort Collins. Mm-hmm. And my dad... Dad comes down on the weekends, so we're making it work. But uh, yeah, it's just you know, we all all look forward to getting through this shit and moving on. Well, people listening are going to want to do something. So um, you were bringing up a website that they can get involved with, yeah, or a, or, or a program anyway that they can get involved with, which I'll post as well. But what were you talking about? Yeah, it's the. Be the Be the Match uh, Foundation, which is a donor registry for bone marrow donors, and uh, you can go to the website at marrow.org to check it out. Um, to become a potential donor is pretty simple; it just involves like a mouth swab and some uh, 
some history written down. Uh, no longer requires like a, a blood draw or anything like that. Uh-huh. So it's super simple to do. And if you do it, you might end up saving uh, somebody's life someday. Uh, my friend Kent, climbing partner, he, uh, he got on the donor list shortly after I was diagnosed. And uh, he was called up and um, ended up donating stem cells, which is basically you sit in a chair for like eight hours and you basically donate blood for eight hours. Right. You know, it's not that big of a deal. Um, and he ended up, yeah, like donating to a 27 year old male and he's, he's a 27 year old male. And it was kind of like, that's kind of cool, you know, Mm -hmm. to think that you're potentially saving life. Is youth important to this? Um, not necessarily, you know, um, it is a good factor because like you've been exposed to less and stuff over time, but everybody can, uh, Check it out. Anyway. Check it out, yeah. Well, I just was reading because Kelly, uh, Kelly Cordes posted oh, this right. on his blog, and he got shut down because of all the, metal. all the metal inside of him. But then yeah. I thought, wow, I'm actually completely metal-free. <laughs> nice. And, uh, you know, I'm in, I'm in actually pretty good health, but I'm, I'm 41, so. Yeah. Well, no, I'll I have to check do. it out. Yeah. Because so, um, I've, I've been lucky in terms of, of them sticking rods and things in my bones. So nice. that's good. Well, all right, Kevin, uh, this has been amazing. And, and uh I really appreciate you trusting me to come down here and talk to you about all this stuff because we are not friends, at least up to this point. We haven't been in. Uh, so to have a stranger into your house and uh, start opening your souls has got to be a, a pretty hard thing to do, and I really do appreciate it. Yeah, well, likewise, I appreciate you coming down, and uh, yeah, it's been it's been good. And I wish you all the best. Thanks, man. I hope uh, a few years down the line we're climbing in the creek or a uh, rifle or, you know, Maybe maybe the black. <laughs> <laughs> Those of you waiting to drink, there you go. All right, thanks a lot, Kevin. Yeah, thanks, man. All right. Well, thanks for listening to this pretty special episode of the Normal Cast. I want to thank Kevin Landolt for allowing us into his world allowing us to empathize with what he's going through. I also want to make sure that he knows that I think I can speak for all of us when I say we wish him all the luck in the world in the next few months. And we're also thinking about his family, his father and mother who are helping him through this. Once again, that is marrow.org, M-A-R-R-O-W.org, Be The Match. I am in the age bracket and was able to sign up. So go check that out. It's definitely more involved if you get chosen than giving blood, but we're climbers. We're not scared of that sort of thing. Also, if you have a minute, check out Kevin's blog, Thriving and Surviving at kevinlandolt.blogspot.com. Some pretty amazing writing over there. Some short little entries. Take it in small bites. It'll get inside of you, I can guarantee you. I'll make sure and post all these links at the website at normalcast.com. And remember, you can always email me directly at chris at normalcast.com. I'd like to end episode 26 with a quote from Gregory Crouch's Enduring Patagonia. And like much of this episode, it doesn't really offer a nice, tidy wrap-up. But the quote is something that Kevin has used for inspiration. It speaks to the courage that he has looking into what he's facing and not turning away.
but the night is jet black. Only the periphery of my vision can discern the edges of the great peaks against the inky sky. I trace out the shapes in the dark, and the massive bulks of stone and ice seem to stand in the coal black night like a vast heavenly tribunal, hunkered down against time and divided from me by an impenetrable void. We are here, proud and alone, but of all the tortures meted out to man, this is the hardest to bear, that the universe doesn't care. The universe is utterly unmoved by the human condition, and a God's wrath would be a much easier burden than the eternal indifference apparent in this black night. <laughs>